we know that on Yom Kippur, in Yom Kippur afternoon, by Mincha, by the afternoon prayers, they read the Torah, and then they put the Torah away, and then they read from the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is one of the books of the Torah. It's actually not its, not its own book. If you count the 24 books of the Bible, it's part of, of one book called the Treyas, or the 12 prophets, the 12 minor prophets, that are lumped together into one book. It's a very short book. The whole book is read on Yom Kippur afternoon. It's only got 48 verses. And the relation to the theme of Yom Kippur is obvious to anyone who reads the book of Jonah. It orients, of course, around repentance. Both of the protagonists of the story, namely the prophet Jonah, Jonah ben Amittai, and the people of Nineveh, the people of the great sprawling metropolis who he is tasked by God to go have them rectify their ways, and they collectively change their behavior, and they're spared from destruction. So obviously, the overlap with the theme of the Day of Yom Kippur, the theme of repentance, the overlap between that and the book of Jonah is patent to all. But in Jewish literature, and certainly in Jewish mysticism slash Kabbalah, there's always going to be multi-layers. So for example, you read the Torah and you open Rashi. And Rashi, of course, is the most basic of commentaries, the most uh, the fundamental commentary in the Torah, the greatest commentary in the Torah. And he always is going to give you a little portal, a little window into a deeper level of understanding of the text. So if there's a dialogue, we'll understand what really is behind the dialogue. If there's a connection between two verses or two sections, we'll understand the deep meaning. If there's a puzzling narrative, He'll illuminate it. He's always going to give us a little bit of a deeper insight into understanding the text. And that applies with Rashi's commentary throughout the entire Torah, and the, throughout the entire Tanakh, throughout the entire uh, Bible. But there's also a different kind of multi-layered understanding of Torah that is generally called what's called the Pardes, which stands for the, the four different strata of understanding of any Torah idea. You have a Torah idea, a verse, for example. There's the, the the simple understanding, which is what we always do. And Rashi is always going to help us understand the simple version. And then there's the Midrashic, and then there's the Kabbalistic, and there's the hidden, and then there's the esoteric, and then there's the Hamalad. There's all these deeper layers of strata that most of the time we 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 tend to avoid in our in our studies because it's a little bit above us. What I want to do today is I want to take the book of Jonah, and I want to explore it a little bit on that deeper level. I want to see the the hidden Kabbalistic story embedded beneath the surface story and discover something so incredible and so beautiful that just as the the simple version of the story, the one that's just if you just read it and follow you follow the narrative, just as that is very relevant to the festival of Yom Kippur and the themes of Yom Kippur, we find an equally topical version of this story on an entirely different level with different characters and different interpretations and different messages, but that's also very relevant, maybe even more relevant to the festival of Yom Kippur. So let's go through the basic story on a basic level and then try to go one flight beneath the deck like Jonah did and uh, see what we discover. So you read the first chapter of the book of Jonah, and it tells the story of a apparently renegade prophet by the name of Jonah. 
He defies the directive of God. He refuses to go castigate the people of Nineveh. And instead, he tries to escape from God and go to a different place called Tarshish, with decidedly mixed results, shall we say. So he descends to Jaffa or Yafo, and he boards a ship to Tarshish. He pays his fare, and he embarks on the journey. But God's not happy with him. He's, after all, been given the very clear instruction, go to Nineveh and have them repent. And instead, he tries to escape from God. And he tries to go to some other place. So God sends the hurricane. God sends the gale. And the ship is thrown into grave danger. And all the sailors of the ship are freaking out. And they're all pagans. They're all praying to their own idols. And of course, those prayers yield no fruit. Meanwhile, Jonah, totally nonplussed, he heads below deck and goes to a very deep sleep. And the captain discovers Jonah, and he wakes him up. He says, what are you doing? Everyone's everyone's all nervous. Everyone's praying. How could you sit there idly and not pray? You have to pray to your God. Maybe your God will help us. Maybe he will help uh, spare the ship. And the sailors figure out that one of them is guilty, so they do a lottery to figure out who's the guilty party. And they put everyone's name, all the passengers, in a hat, and they pick out the name, it's Jonah. Jonah's the guilty party. He says, yes, I'm the guilty party. And they begin to pester him with questions. They ask him, what do you do? What's your business? Where are you from? Which land is yours? Which people do you belong to? Very specific questions that they're interrogating him uh, over here with. And he responds to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear God, the God of the heavens. He made both the land and the sea. And he's guilty. They get even more afraid. And they ask him, what do we do? What can we do to make the waters calm down? He says, well, you have to lift me up and chuck me into the water. And initially, they demurred. And they tried to row really quickly back to the shore. And it wasn't uh, efficacious. The seas got even stormier. They prayed to God, make sure that we don't kill innocent men. And they lift up Jonah and they cast him into the sea, and right away, the hurricane stopped. In fact, the major says they tried to lift him out, and they lift him out, and it started again. And they throw him back in, and it stopped. So clearly, this is evidence. Jonah's the guilty party, and God's here intervening with the weather. And they get even more scared of God, the sailors do. They start offering sacrifice to him and making vows to him. And that's the end of chapter 1, 16 verses. Jonah's in the sea. And the waters come and the boat is totally at ease. And the rest of the book is going to follow Jonah. Uh, he's going to be swallowed by the fish. He's going to be in the fish's belly for three days. He's going to be a very long prayer to God from the belly of the fish. He's going to be spit out. According to the Talmud, he spit out from one fish to a different fish. And eventually ends up on dry land. And he has a second chance. And that's another idea, uh, obviously, theme of, of Yom Kippur. Even another chance with repentance. And... Again, God tells him to go to Nineveh. This time he obeys. Nineveh, the great city, they heed the call of Jonah to repent. And this greatly distresses Jonah. He wants to die. He prays to die. And the book ends with God teaching him a valuable lesson uh, with a plant that wilts. That's the very quick version of the book of Jonah. And then we open up some of the other books, some of the other teachings, and find a deeper level of understanding uh, based upon the Kabbalah. Now, as a general rule, 
We know that the Torah is, is multi-layered. There's many, many sources that talk about the different hidden, arcane, esoteric levels of understanding of the Torah. For example, we're told, Shivim Panim Torah. there's 70 facets of Torah, which means you look at it from different angles, you could, you could see different, uh, different ideas, at least 70 different facets in every verse of Torah. The verse compares Torah, the study of Torah, to taking a hammer and shattering a rock. And what that reveals, just like you shatter a rock, there's splinters, there's fragments heading in every direction. Similarly, if you deepen your immersion to Torah, you'll see so many different angles, so many different understandings uh, of Torah that are, that are latent within, within the, the, the message. Incidentally, the Talmud also says that our Yetzahara is compared to a stone heart. And when it's telling us this idea of studying Torah, it's like shattering the stone, which flies into all kinds of fragments, it's also revealing to us that you're actually fixing your central flaw, your central malady, namely the fact that you have the stone heart, that you have the Yitzhahara, and that's, that's also remediating your, your, your problem, your fundamental flaw. So there's many sources to, to affirm that there are many layers of understanding. And if you read stories in the Torah, even stories in the Talmud, conversations that these rabbis had doesn't seem to have immediate relevance. You, you don't know what the message you see. You could sense there's something hidden, but it, it doesn't make sense at any level that, we, that that you're conscious of. And you open up the other books and they're like, whew, they open your eyes and you see like, wow, this makes so much sense and how it connects to other sources and how it's hidden. It's like you take the message, you divide it up into five pieces, you scatter them throughout the Talmud. And that's how the architects of the Talmud were able to hide their message Write it in encoded, encrypted fashion. So that's the general idea. But there is a book written by the Gona Vilna. Gona Vilna is the uh, central Jewish character of the 18th century. And he writes a commentary, the book of Jonah. And he says, I'm going to explain to you the book of Jonah, not on the simple level, not on the story, the people, individuals, but on a little bit of a deeper level. And what he tells us in his introduction that the book is hinting at the conflict and the tension of the soul and the body and the fact that the soul is given a mission to accomplish in life. Sometimes it's going to fail the mission. What happens when things go off script? What happens when things go awry? What happens when the soul does not follow its directive? What happens then? That's his general premise, and I don't want to spoil it, but he says that we see Jonah here. He has his first shot. He fails. He goes through this really difficult process, and he spit back on the shore and give him a second chance. The going of Vilna, and again, I don't want to get sidetracked with this question, but he says this, this, this is revealing about the idea. You have one chance at accomplishing your mission. You may miss out on that, you may fail at that, and you may get another chance. That's the day of reincarnation, and we're going to talk about that. But hold the questions, because this could literally derail the class. <laughs> Not literally. Figuratively, completely derail it if we start going down that uh, that rabbit hole. So let's, start, let's just start reading the first chapter, the chapter that we read on the basic level, see what we discover on this deeper level. So the first verse introduces us to the prophet Jonah, and it tells us the word of God came to Jonah, Ben Amitai, Jonah, the son of Amitai. 
The Hebrew word for Jonah is Yonah. And the word Yonah also means an animal. Which animal? The dove. The dove. Which is a kind of bird. Makes a nice uh, memorable appearance in the Noah story, the flood story. So our guide, the Gona Villa, tells us that when it's talking about Jonah, of course there's Jonah the prophet, there's the individual on that level. But on this level that we're going to be talking about, Jonah is a reference to man's soul. The central character, the protagonist, or maybe the villain, if you will, of the book of Jonah is the human soul. And he goes on to explain why he's called Jonah, or at least in this allegorical level, why is he called Jonah? Why is he compared to a dove? So he brings all kinds of evidence that the animal, the dove, is often compared to the soul and to the essence of the Jewish people and to holiness. And he brings some examples. So for example, he, he, he quotes the verse in, in Hosea. The verse in Hosea 7.11, easy number for Americans to remember, it compares someone who's acting in a sinful way to a silly and heartless dove. You can think of a lot of ways to describe someone who is sinful. It describes him as a as a dove that acts silly and heartlessly. And of course, he quotes the, the Zohar and the, the Kabbalah, explains that this refers to the soul gone awry. And there's also uh, other episodes that were told in Jewish literature that affirm that there's something really special about this stuff. So for example, the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 49a, is talking about the mitzvah of tefillin. Tefillin is uh, phylacteries in Greek, I think is the word. And it's the, the black boxes that we wear in the morning when you pray. Sometimes they used to wear it throughout the whole day. Some people still do that. But it's the black boxes made out of uh, animal, of leather, and it has the parchments of the Torah. And it's supposed to kind of bind us with God. So it talks about how you have to have a clean body when you wear this film. That's the subject of the Gemara. But it brings a story of Elisha, the person to whom the episode of the wings happened. What's the episode of the wings? So it tells us that the Roman government, the wicked Roman government, in the words of the Talmud, they made a decree on the Jewish people. And they said, whoever dons tefillin, their brain is going to be gouged out of their skull. The Romans didn't play games. If they wanted to punish you, they did it in gruesome, horrific, macabre fashion. So if you were a tefillin, we're going to disgorge your brain. That's what the Romans said. And there was this one guy named Elisha. And he says, I'm wearing tefillin. Not only is he not is he wearing tefillin, he's hiding in his closet. He says, I, I always wear tefillin all day, and I'm not scared of the Romans. And he walked out in the street, fully bedecked with his tefillin. And there's a Roman official there, and he sees him. And they begin a chase. Elisha, wearing the tefillin, starts running, escaping from the from the officer, and the officer's chasing him. And, of course, he is able to catch up to him. So quickly, he takes off his tefillin from his head and from his arm, and he holds him in his hands. And the officer knows what's happening, and he says, open your hands, what do you have in your hands? And he says, it's just a dove's wings. I'm holding dove wings. I'm, I'm holding some... Some food. I got some wings. I bought some wings in the store by the butcher, by the poultry section. I bought some wings. No big deal. 
So he's like, yes, I'll believe that when I see that. Open your hands. And he opens his hands, and a miracle happens. There's wings in his hands. And people were so wowed by the story, they renamed him. You're not just regular Elisha. You're Elisha, to whom the story with the wings, the, the winged man, he's the winged man, the first winged man. He's Elisha, the master of the wings, because of this story. So the Talmud investigates, why was why was a dove's wings chosen to demonstrate? Why, why that says, says the Talmud, because the Jewish people compared to the dove. Why? Just as a dove can only save itself with its wings, so do the Jewish people only save themselves with their prayer. So again, we see something, there's some, there's some spiritual quality that our sages are assigning to the dove. And the Gona Vilna, when he brings this idea, he introduces that idea, he says, Yona, it's something spiritual. Yes, of course, on, on one level, talking about the individual, the person, the prophet, Jonah. But on this allegorical level, on the level of metaphor, it's talking about the soul. And here are some examples of the, of the soul being compared to, or something spiritual being compared to the dove. And, and the idea here is that the soul is something which is committed to doing what's right, even at great personal peril. Just as, you know, the embodiment, the archetype, the paradigmatic example of someone who's willing to forfeit all to do the mitzvah is Elisha. And, and here we see that there is the reference to the dove. In addition, our sages revealed to us that the dove in its nature, the, the bird in its nature, it doesn't mate with anyone besides for its spouse. Which means that if you have two doves, they become a couple. If one of them dies, the other one will be celibate for the rest of the rest of its life. It's, it's, it's in its nature, which again shows that it has a certain purity to it, has a certain spiritual characteristic to it, that it doesn't act in a promiscuous way even for birds. And similarly, our sages tell us that what's that's hinting is that the Jewish people were committed to God. God's committed to us. There's a union here, an unbreakable union between the Jewish people. And, and, and holiness. And again, that's why the dove is a great example to represent the soul. In addition, a fourth example that the Midrash tells us that there's, that uh, you take uh, a dove to the slaughterhouse, it doesn't resist slaughter. All the other animals, they start squawking and making noise and trying to resist. The, the dove doesn't resist. And similar idea that the Jewish people, you know, when we are faced with a question of martyrdom, when our life is in the question, are we going to repudiate God to save our life? We're like the dove a little bit. The holiness is represented by the dove that we won't resist the will of God, even if it means dying as a result. So that's the first verse, Jonah. On this level, Jonah is a reference to the soul. But it's not just Jonah. His full name is Jonah ben Amitai, the son of Amitai. And on one level, that's his father's name. His father's name is Amitai. A nice Jewish name. But on this level, Amitai from the word emet. Emet means truth. Which means the soul is descending from truth. The soul originates in a place of tremendous truth, of purity. And parenthetically, the Talmud says that the, the symbol, the emblem of God is truth. And therefore what it's hinting at here on this level is that the soul derives from a place of total truth. So that's the introduction. And we could talk about this maybe at greater length, but the, the concept of the soul in, in, in Jewish philosophy, it's a very central idea. The idea that all of us, of course, we exist on one plane, we have the body, but we also have simultaneously 
the soul that's fused together with the body that animates it, gives it life, gives it vitality, infuses it with existence. It's like the software that makes the hardware work. And we also believe that you take the, the soul out of the body, the body no longer is functional. That's the definition of death, right? That the separation of soul and body, that the two things that are fused, the two opposites that are fused together are removed and no longer do you have life. But the soul is something which in, in Jewish literature is something which is so lofty, so exalted, so spiritually sublime that it's almost unfathomable that it's here married with our, our body, like our ephemeral earthly body. That's, that almost doesn't make any sense. So for example, there's many sources to this. We talk about uh, Genesis. God blows the soul into the nostril of, of Adam. We have this body, this almost like an animal, and then boom, infused with a godly soul, like from God. Amazing idea. Talmud says that the child before a child is born, the child's reminded that you are similar to God. God's holy, you're holy. There's a certain equivalence almost, the holiness of God, the holiness of man's soul. There's a very long teaching in the Talmud book of Brachos, page 10a, that talks about Five times, King David in the book of Psalms makes a prayer called Barchi Nafshi, let my soul praise God. Why is David making this blessing, this prayer, this song, let my soul praise God? What's the connection between my soul and God? And why specifically five times? Talmud lists, there's five overlapping characteristics between God and the soul of man. And therefore, it's appropriate that our soul can praise God. Our body, it's its not very useful to praise God. It's the soul, really, that can have that connection. So that's the first verse. We meet Jonah, the son of Amittai, the soul of man, and what we read about in verse 2 is its mission. So what does God tell Jonah? Go to Nineveh, the great city, proclaim judgment to it, for their wickedness has come before me. The soul originates in one place, but is temporarily brought to a different place to accomplish a certain mission. Jonah is in one place. God says, go elsewhere. The soul is one place. God says, go elsewhere. Accomplish something. Get up from your place in heaven. Go to terra firma. Go to the world. And do something there for me. Now, Nineveh, of course, is a great city. We know that historically there's a great city called Nineveh. But in Hebrew, the word neveh means an abode. And it could be read that God is telling Jonah, go to this city, it's a sinful city, and make it a more hospitable city for me. God wants us to fix, to perfect, to rectify, to purify, to refine this world so that it could be a proper abode for him. There's something that God almost is asking us to do to make the world a place where God could dwell. In fact, if you could distill the Jewish mission in life, like what role are we supposed to play using our soul, using the guidance that we got from the Torah, our objective is to make a parallel between this world and the world of the soul, to make them as indistinguishable as possible. For example, we say the Kaddish. 
What's the Kaddish? Oh, the Kaddish means holiness, right? What is the Kaddish is? Let your name be proclaimed here as it is there. That's what Abraham did. Abraham brings God to this world. God does not need to be introduced into the heavens above, into the spiritual realms. Everyone knows it there. Here, there's all these things that seem to obscure God. And therefore, here, it's a big deal. Abraham comes and says, well, there's actually one power. All the powers coalesced into one being, the one being that created it all. And that's such a novel idea. And Abraham begins the process of making this world also hospitable to God. And our nation, armed with our souls, is tasked with completing what Abraham began. Go to Nineveh. It's a big city. Fix it. Call out to it. And again, I'm stepping over a lot of things here, a lot of details that, 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 that enrich the, the account. But there's all kinds of, of hints throughout all areas of Jewish literature. What does it mean a big city? Why is it, what is a small city? What is a big world? And I, I, I for the sake of, uh, of, of the time allotted, it's important for us to try to, to see the picture, to see the message. But every single word here, it's amazing. I'm reading this. Every single word is part of both narratives, the simple narrative. And then there's this deeper level and it all has meaning. Uh, what does it mean to call out it? What exactly is the soul supposed to fix? What does it look like when the world is fixed? But that's the general idea. Jonah, the soul sent to the world. Go fix the world. And I think what makes this such a powerful way of understanding the, the book is that it's not only a historical account of what happened many thousands of years ago with a prophet named Jonah. It's happening every day within us. We have a little Jonah within us, or a big Jonah, or a powerful Jonah, certainly an invisible Jonah, the soul, and it was sent here. If we're here, obviously God believes that our soul has something to do, and therefore he sends it down downstairs here to this world, and we have a mission. And whether or not we will accomplish our mission and how we will do it, it's in our hands. And the consequences of what happens when people opt to disobey or disregard their mission or not fully complete it, that's what it's going to talk about right away. So Jonah is given this mission. The soul is told, go fix the world. And instead it says, ah, I'd rather do something else. I have a different agenda. The soul, Jonah, is disobeying God. He's escaping God. Instead of going to Nineveh, he wants to go to a different city. He wants to go to Tarshish. Again, the name has meaning. The word Tarshish in, in the Torah, if you look at where it appears in the Torah, it's one of the names of the precious stones in the breastplate of the high priest. Tarshish is a very expensive, precious stone. The the soul, instead of trying to obey the will of God, is drawn to, to beauty. He wants to pursue other pleasures, get dis- gets distracted from what God wants it to do, and wants to make a platform for other things, for for desires. It's going to favor what is physically appealing and alluring over God's mission. Where, where does it travel to? It's an amazing thing. We, we're given this details here in the Jonah story. Jonah gets up to escape to Tarshish. This is the third verse. And he goes to Yafo or Yafo. We know there's a city called Jaffa. In, in, in the coast of Israel. 
but it's a, it seems like a, it's a trivial uh, detail that he goes to the port city of, of Jaffa or Jaffa. We know the Hebrew word for beauty is Yofi. And here, the God is explaining here, he's trying to find a a different angel. He wants to go to Tarshish, the city of Tarshish. He wants to pursue the beauty. And he gives a litany of examples where we find that people are drawn after the beauty. He goes to, for example, Adam and Eve. Eve sees that there's something appealing, there's something attractive about the tree, and that leads them down the sinful path. Jonah, the soul, is 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 lured after the beauty, after the city of Tarshish, after the Yafo, the, the the beauty that is so appealing, it's so desirable. And it decides to board the ship. In this story, the ship is the body. And another theme that appears again is that the dry land, that's where the soul is home, that's where it comes from, that's where it wants to go. No one ever gets on a ship Maybe I guess today this would apply. People get on the ship because they want to go on the ship. But traditionally, you get, out, you get on a ship because you have a destination you want to go to. It's not a permanent designation. It's a, it's a way to, to transport from this place on land to that place on land. The soul, the Jonah, comes from a pl- place of land. That's where it's home. That's the heaven, what's called paradise, alternatively, Olamaba. That's the place where the soul is permanently supposed to be located. And for some small amount of time, it's put in the ship, it's put in the body to accomplish something and to once again be restored to its more natural habitat on land in a place like in in, he- in heaven, alternatively called Ganade and Paradise, Olamaba, a place where the soul is at ease. It's not in a normal setting when it is on the boat. That's the marriage of of body and soul. And he quotes again, there's so much there's so much richness to these messages, to these uh, connections. For example, he quotes a, a Talmud in the book of Tamid, page 33a. It talks about a, a dialogue that happened between Alexander the Great and the sages of the South. There's 10 questions that Alexander asked the Jewish sages of the South. We don't, we don't get details as to who they are, but it's Jewish sages of the South. And he asked them, among his uh, 10 questions was the following question, is it better for a person to live at sea or is it better for a person to live on dry land? And they said to him, it's better to live on dry land because when someone is at sea, they're unsettled. They're not at ease until they reach the dry land. Now, if you just read that Talmud, you're like, this is such a lame dialogue between Alexander the Great. This is what he's asking, and this is what they're responding. It's such a silly thing to talk about. Is it better to live over here or better to live over there? Like, Why is that relevant to us? Now that we have this paradigm that what it's talking, that that it, what it's hinting at, when we talk in the Jonah story, but on that l- deeper level, what it's hinting at is the dry land is the soul's abode, is the soul's place of origin, is the soul's desired location. And the the sea, well, that's this temporary time in the middle where the soul is married to the body, where the soul goes into the ship, where Jonah descends to the ship. That's our time here. That's the fusion of body and soul. Now there's a deep, deeper meaning. Alexander the Great. If there's anyone that enjoyed life, it was him. 
And he's asking the question, you know, you Jews, you believe in this afterlife and the fact the soul's going to leave and it's going to go to the dry land for the soul. What's better? Like someone like me, who's really enjoying my time here, everything I want is at my fingertips. For me, is it better to have the dry land or is it better for to, 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 have to be at the sea? Is it better for me to be here in the sea? Because things are so good for me. If there's any sailor that's having a good time, it would be me. So maybe, you know, you Jews, you guys suffer. That's kind of your thing. You like to suffer or you end up finding creative ways to absorb more pain. Okay, so you guys, it's better for you to to think about all about, to think about the dry land. But maybe for me, maybe it's better for me to be here at sea in Earth. I'm having a grand old time. So they respond to him, yes, maybe there is legitimacy to your question. But even someone like you, there is a little bit of uncertainty. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the, uh, what was it, Costa Concordia? What was the name of that bitch ship? There was trouble in paradise, right? You were on, you were on the, the, the cruise ship with all the amenities in the world and things didn't work out so well, right? You know, there's a little scintilla of uncertainty even when you're at, at sea on that level. Even you, Alexander, there's a niggling worry, concern until things settle down. Who knows? There's uncertainty in the future. So even someone like you, things aren't, aren't that great. But again, that's another example of, of this, of this paradigm, the body and the soul, Jonah is the soul, the ship is the body. And we'll see what the sailors are in a second. The ship is the body, and this is a temporary union from land to land, from the place where the soul originates and is is at home, at ease, to the place where it is desiring to go or where it's, its mission, God wants it to accomplish and to, and to return that. Now, it's interesting. He points out, that the word being used here to describe a ship is aniya or oniyah in Hebrew, modern Hebrew. But in, in classical Hebrew, that word can mean a ship. It could also mean suffering. What it's hinting at is the fact that the relationship or the experience that the soul has while in the ship is one of suffering. It's not a natural fusion of body and soul so long as they're put together for the soul's perspective. It's like you take the uh, opposite sides of a magnet that are repelling each other because they're opposites and you force them together, you keep them together against their will. Similarly, God has taken the body and the soul, total opposites, and winding them up together to the great consternation of the soul, it's not comfortable at all on this trip. It doesn't want to be on the ship. It'd rather stay in the place where it's more comfortable, on dry land, in the place where it originates. It is not into this whole experiment. In fact, the Talmud talks about how the angel takes the soul out of the vault in which the souls are stored and brings it to God and makes all these pronouncements. It says, okay, now it's time for you to get into the body. And the soul starts protesting like he never heard before. What? What are you suggesting? Where do I go? It's crazy. It's dangerous. I'm happy here. Don't take me there. It's forced into the onia. It's forced into the suffering. It's forced into the ship. Yes, it's also forced into this very unnatural and uncomfortable and painful experience to be 
bound with with the body. Now, I want to point out, I have a copy of this book, which is an adaptation of this whole idea. It's called The Book of Jonah, Journey of the Soul. And it has it in English and in Hebrew. But there is a, a running motif throughout the commentary, which talks about the masculine versus feminine. We know in, in many languages, words can have a, a masculine version and a feminine version. So he actually goes to that level of every word when it pivots from masculine to feminine, feminine to masculine, what the meaning is, you know, is the word neshama is feminine, yet it's being portrayed as masculine. What's the relationship between body and soul? Who's the masculine? Who's the feminine? It's a, a fascinating element that we're not going to get into, but it just, uh, I will just throw that out there if you want to pursue this a little further. It does go to even uh, deeper levels that we're going to talk about. So Jonah, the soul, goes to the ship, the body, and he pays his fare. Again, another trivial or seemingly trivial part of the story, he pays his fear. What does that even mean? So on, on our level, how it could be interpreted is that the soul is now capitulating. It's kind of, it's paying its fare. It's going to, just like someone you pay something, you're diminished, right? You have, you have money, then you have less of it. Soul is holiness. It has less of it now. Even by entering the ship, it's, it's spiritual level. It's spiritual purity is already on more shaky grounds. It's sullied a little bit. It's diminished a little bit. And the Talmud, in fact, says that when Jonah went on the ship, he actually paid for everyone's fare. What does that even mean? So on this level, it's explained by the Gona Vilna. What that means is, is that, you know, who actually suffers for the sins of the body? The soul. So you have the soul paying for everyone's fare, covering everyone's tab. Everyone else is having a great time, but it's all coming out of the soul's pocket. Another another way to another deep level, and he's descending into the ship. Again, the, the verse is, is very clear, not just that he's going into the ship, he's descending. There's a certain demotion that he's going to experience from the highest of highs, from the land, from the place where it is perched on top of, of the world, and now it's it's kind of it's traveling on, on at sea, it's it's been demoted. And because he's intending to go away from God, what does God do? God sends the great mighty wind, the hurricane is sent upon the sea to threaten the ship with being capsized. The way this is explained is that because man is sinning, because Jonah the soul is not doing its mission, it's time for it to be faced with a reckoning. And God sends his angels to go take the soul out of there. The soul has had its opportunity, and it's not doing its job. So the angel of death is appointed to go extract the soul. You've had your time. You've had your opportunity. You didn't do your job. It's time for you to be pulled out of the mission. And the ship is starting to shake. The body is starting to to get ill. And of course, illness, we, we believe, on at least on a spiritual level, illness is God saying, what's wrong with you? Fix your ways. Amend your ways. I'm coming after you. Take the message home. To us, it's, 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 it's a physical ailment that could have happened to anyone. Maybe you should have watched your carbs more. But here, what we're discovering here on this level is that God is 
manipulating the weather, sending the prosecuting angels to go threaten the whole boat with the soul in it, the whole body with the soul in it, because of their behavior. And as an aside, he does give uh, somewhat of a very vivid description based upon the Zohar as to what the angel of death is about to do here. And I'll say it just because it's so frightening and uh, vivid. He talks about the angel of death taking a little bit of poison, tiny little drop of poison, and putting it on the tip of the sword, about to fling it into the body, into the person, into the ship, to destroy it, and thus to take out the soul. And it's interesting, you look at the verse, it talks about the ship was going to be destroyed, it was going to be capsized. And Jonah's totally at ease in the whole story. He's even going to go in the next verse, down below deck, to go to sleep. He's tired. What this means here is that there is a sense of of urgency that the body has that the soul does not have. On the doorstep of death, the angel of death is already there going through the procedures, the protocols of death, and the body's freaking out, and the soul's at ease. And this is another theme that, that, that we'll see a few times. The body recognizes that its mortality is permanent. The soul has this realization that the soul is not going to die with the death of the body. Jonah, the soul, is at ease. The body, the ship is freaking out. It's going to die. It's going to be destroyed. What's going to be? It's, it has no chance to reconstitute. Once it's died, it's, it's, it's useless. It's going to start to decompose. So what happens? The sailors freak out. They cry and they start praying to their gods. The sailors are all the components, are all the forces of the body. And all the things that are held in high regard are suddenly useless to it. In this time, they have the, this one had the god of, uh, of gold and the god of silver and the god of metal and the god of stone. And they're all totally not helpful in its time of need. They realize that when someone's on their deathbed, the body realizes that things that it held in such high esteem, the things that it dedicated a lifetime to pursue are useless to it once it passes. So what do they do? They try to lighten the load. They try to offload. They try to throw overboard all the things maybe that will make, maybe that will give the body continuity. What does that mean? They try to lighten the load of the ship. So he gives two explanations, which I found fascinating. The, the body's about to die and it has the things on it and it tries to remove it. The things that it valued so greatly even that it has to leave behind. The idea of when the body passes, it can't take anything with us, with it. It has to, those things are useless to it. Those things are now thrown into the sea, they're gone. But on a different level, he explains that people have, when they're encountering, when they're facing their own demise, there's an upsurge of devotion. There's a realignment of priorities. And when, the way he explains this is someone's about to die, they realize they should have been more righteous. They should have been more kind. 
and they want to lighten their load. They want to share things with other people. Maybe they were a little bit more selfish in their lifetime, but now that their pending demise is, is right in front of them, they're like, actually, let's give some more charity. Let, 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 let's be more gracious. Let's be more benevolent and giving in kind. Maybe that will help me, which is a very noble thought. But what does Jonah do? Jonah goes beneath the deck. Jonah descends to the hold of the ship. What does that mean? So this I found fascinating. A lot of these things, by the way, are things that I didn't know. I'm like my eyeballs are like, oh, what? What did I just read? So he says like this. The soul, it enters Adam through the nostrils. Right? Maybe it's supposed to be in the head or in the heart. But every time someone sins, the soul is demoted. It goes down one floor. It goes down and down and down until it's the bottom of the ship. Meaning that a sinner's soul, it's not in their mind, it's not in their intellect, it's not in their nostrils, it's not in their throat, it's not in their heart even. It's in their feet. It's near the dust of their feet. It's been demoted and downgraded to such a degree that it's surrounded by all the trash, by all the dust, by all the lowest levels of impurity. At that time, the angel of death is appointed. Once Jonah is all the way at the bottom, once the soul is all the way at the bottom, now it's kind of beyond repair almost. It's time to invoke the angel of death. Maybe we'll have to start over again. Now, he also points out, and this is something that you, we would totally miss if we read the verse simply. In this, in this verse, it talks about the sailors trying to offload the stuff from the boat, which is called aniyah, same word that it was called until now. And Jonah, he descends to the Sfina. Sfina is also named for a boat. So why is it changing? In one verse, it's changing the name from an Oniyah to a Sfina. So he explains that an Oniyah is like a, a seafaring ship. It's like an invincible, intrepid, titanic ship. That's how you begin life. The body feels invincible. The body feels eternal. Nothing can make this ship sink. Not even God. Not even the icebergs. And now, at this juncture, it's an old, feeble, weak, it's a tugboat, it's a canoe, it's a raft, it's a kayak, it's a dinghy. It's not up to the task. There's a degradation of the body. And Jonah, he goes to sleep. He almost is resigned the soul is resigned to its fate, and he's ready to be pulled away by the angel of death. But the captain freaks out. The captain says to him, how could you be sleeping? Go pray to your God. Maybe your God will help us. The captain is, is the mother of all of the forces of the body. It's the heart. And he's calling out to the soul, repent, fix what you can before you die. Maybe we can even rescind this decree. And again, we see this, this contrast. We have this urgency from the body's perspective, the, the heart, the body, the captain, the ship, it realizes it's it's temporary and wants to preserve its existence. And Jonah, the soul, is almost calm. It knows it will continually exist. And right away, they start throwing lots. The various parts of man are trying to identify the sin. Was it the tongue that sinned, speaking improperly? Was it the hands that did sin, the feet? Maybe it was the genitalia? 
which part of, of, of this collected being, the ship with all its inhabitants, with Jonah, with the soul, which part is guilty to be warranting, to be deserving of this punishment? And ultimately, the lot falls on Jonah. Because ultimately, the real power, the real force was the soul. The soul could have veered the whole ship towards proper behavior, towards doing the will of God, or it allowed the other forces to overcome it. And thus, yes, the body sinned. But you know what? Ultimately, who's guilty? It's Jonah. It's the soul. In fact, he invokes the Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us in chapter 2 of Apertiavos, Rabbi Yochman Zakai has his five students and he asks each one of them to go identify what's the most important characteristic. And each one of them comes up with a different answer. A good eye, a good friend, a good neighbor. And then the winner is the one who says a good heart. And similarly, on the flip side, the worst characteristic is to have a bad heart. Because the heart, is, in this in this example, refers to the soul. Because ultimately, if you have a good soul, if you have an empowered soul, everything else will fall into place. If the soul is not doing its job, if Jonah is not influencing the ship, ultimately he's guilty. Yes, the sailors also have their guilt, but that all stems from the source, which is Jonah. And right away the body, all the sailors begin to investigate Jonah. They asked him, what did you do to bring this misfortune on us? And they, again, list four questions. What's your business? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people do you belong to? Are we guilty alongside of you? Are we also going to get punished? The body is very nervous. And it's asking all these questions of, of Jonah. What's your business? I'm not asking you, are you a carpenter? Are you a plumber? Are you an orthodontist? What business did God put you in this world for? What was your mission that God sent you to do? Where have you come from? What's your place of origin? You came from heaven. What are you doing? Jonah, soul. How did you descend so low? The soul is being castigated. It's being admonished by the body here on the doorstep of death. What's your country? Which land are you from? Don't you remember where you came from? Remember that land, the place where you were comfortable, the place where you originated from? How could you have acted in a way that's so antithetical to the way that you were raised, to the, to where you come from, to where you're, to where you originate from? What people are you from? How do you forget the nation that you belong to and the mission that it stands for? They ask them all these questions because they know what's happening here and they, they identify the guilty party. It's Jonah. It's the soul. And now the soul is going to have to explain what was the rationale? Why did it do that? And he answers, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew. I fear God. I worship God, who be, who made both the sea and the land. Again, that recurring motif. He responds to him, I'm a Hebrew. The Hebrew word for Hebrew is Ivri. The word Ivri means from the other side. Mi Avrahanar. Abraham is called from the other side of the river. Here we, again, get a very graphic and frightening citation from the Zohar. What separates the world of the souls from our world? There is a river that separates our world from the world of the soul. Jonah, the soul, declared to all, I am a Hebrew. I'm from the other side. I'm from a different dimension a different realm than here. I crossed over the river. 
And to get back, I'm going to have to cross over the same river. But the Zohar tell us, tells us that this is not an ordinary river. There's a river of fire. What this means, I don't know. And I'm not going to answer any questions because I'm going to say I don't know. There's a river of fire separating the world of the souls from our world. The soul was able to traverse the river coming here. No problem. Maybe with some problems. Some navigation. Some deft navigation. To get back to its place of origin, it once again needs to traverse that same river. However, on the way back, it depends. Was the soul injured? Was it damaged? Was it sullied? Was it reduced in its spiritual holiness during its time here? If yes, it might need to bathe through that river, and it might need to be cleansed and purified, restored to the situation in which it can be a citizen of that world. But if the soul indeed was in the same condition, pristine condition that it came here, that it crossed over the river river in the original time, well, then it could cross back without any impediments. The soul now realizes that it messed up and it's thinking about what it's going to have to do, how what's going to have to endure to go back home. And he acknowledges that my job, you asked me what business I'm in, my job is to fear God. Of course, we have the book of Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon is trying to figure out what's, what's life all about? And he spends, you know, eight or ten chapters trying to figure out the answer. And the bottom line is it's to fear God. It's to have a palpable sense of the dominion of God at all times. And again, Jonah, the souls come to that realization how badly it messed up. The same God who created both the land and the sea, both the soul's place of comfort, its home, and the sea, this turbulent world, both of them the handiwork of God. He made that all. My job was to fear him. I'm going to have to cross back over that river to get back home. The people are terrified. They say to him, what have you done? They discover that he's fleeing from God because he told them. The body, again, is asking the soul, how could you have made such a grievous blunder? How could you have ignored your mission? They're trembling with fear when they hear the account of the soul's origins, its most exalted place of of origination and its mission, and they realize we were privy to the soul's life. We were here all along the way. We recognize that it escaped from God. We didn't necessarily know it was a sin because we're a body. But now that the soul is revealing to us its its history, its backstory, its mission, its consequences, and we know good and well that it did not uphold the standard that it was entrusted with. And therefore, we're terrified. What does this mean for us? They say to him, what can we do to make the sea calm down? Is there anything we could do, the body asks the soul, to forestall or to delay or to rescind the death decree that is upon us? And he responds, the soul does, Jonah does in the story, lift me up, throw me overboard. Lift me up. Those words in the Torah appear elsewhere. They describe when Pharaoh lifted the head of his baker. In essence, Jonah said, there's no choice. It's too late. You have to allow me to die. Another point 
Where's the soul at this juncture? The soul is all the way by the feet. To leave, it's got to once again be pulled out through the throat, through the place where it came in, all the way back up from the feet, from the below deck, to be taken out of the body from the same place that it went into. And then he says, Jonah says in the story, I know that this whole hurricane, the whole gale is because of me. In effect, there's this, the, the, the pain that the body's experienced, the pain that the ship is experiencing is all the result of the soul. The body's racked with pain, the body's suffering, that's only because the angel of death, the quote-unquote wind and forces that the Almighty's employing here, they just want the soul. And the second the soul's out, the body's calm and at ease, its pain ceases. They get this terrible account. There's nothing to do to save this enterprise. And they say, you know what? We're going to try anyhow. So what do they do? Even after Jonah tells them, there's only one solution. You got to let me go overboard. That's, that's the only way to get out of this predicament. That's the only way to end the pain of the body, the pain of the ship. They say, you know what? We're going to try anyhow. And they quickly try to row to shore. And it is futile. The sea grew stormier still. The body's resisting the soul's resignation to its fate and is desperately trying to stave off its death. They want to row to shore. What's the shore? That's the land. That's the Olamaba. They want to say, okay, well, let's try at the last moment to, maybe there's a way for us to undo this. Let's go to the, to, to the shore. But its efforts are in vain. It's not going to help. There's a certain point of no return. There's a certain point in the death protocol that repentance doesn't work. And, and and Jonah, in this story, in this allegory, Jonah and the body and the ship, they have reached that point beyond which even repentance is not going to be effective. So the body starts crying out to God. They cried out to the Lord, please, God, don't let us perish on account of this person's life. Again, we see this terror, this urgency that the body has, the soul doesn't seem to share, it realizes that it could be very well punished alongside Jonah, alongside the soul. It does not want to be punished alongside the soul. And the, the Gona Vilna, when he talks about this, he's elaborating a lot more than I am, but he talks about how, you know, who's the real guilty party here? The guilty party is the soul. The body, after all, maybe didn't know any better. He quotes the Midrash. The Midrash gives an analogy you had two people that committed the identical offense against the king. One of them was a simpleton, a peasant, a villager. And the other one was a minister, was a member of the nobility, of the aristocracy. And both of them were placed on a platform and were judged. And the king noticed that the king's the judge and he says that both of them did the identical infraction, the identical crime. But the king decided to acquit the peasant and to convict the minister. And people said to the king, it's not fair. They both did the same crime. Why should one of them be acquitted and the other one of them be punished very severely? And the king responded, well, the villager, simpleton, he's ignorant. They don't know how they're supposed to behave around the king. They cannot be held guilty for their, for their behavior. But the the, the nobleman, the minister, they should have known better. 
Therefore, they're guilty. So similarly over here, yes, the body was entirely condoning of the desires of the soul. And it participated. It's a co-conspirator in the crimes. The soul committed the crimes. The body committed the crimes as well. They did it in unison. But you know what? The soul should have known better. And therefore, he's the one who's really guilty. And the body says, I should not be held guilty. Don't punish me. Just punish the soul. And indeed, they lifted Jonah and they threw him overboard. And right away, the sea stopped raging. There's a very dramatic, shall we say, if we need any more drama. There's a very dramatic account here that as the angel of death is coming closer and closer, the soul is being brought up from the feet and there's this interaction that the soul has with each part of the body. It's saying goodbye. And finally, it's taken out of the body. It's thrown into the sea. It's the sea of judgment and right away, the body grows still. The body is no longer racked with any pain, any suffering. The final verse of chapter 1 describes what the body or what the sailors, how they reacted to this revelation. The bodies, they're petrified. The men feared the Lord greatly and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows. I'll read you a citation here. That is quoted by the Gona Vilna from the Zohar. On the day of someone's death, the four corners of the universe go into a state of intense judgment. A proclamation from the upper world is heard in all kinds of universes. Again, what this means, it's very advanced. So I don't know, but I think it's vivid enough uh, and it's relevant enough for us to, to, to at least read it. If the person is righteous, all the universes, the 271, 70 of them that are being discussed here, they come out to welcome him in a state of great joy. But if he's not righteous, woe unto him and woe unto his portion. A black rooster begins calling up to the gates. At first, it calls out, behold, the day of Hashem is coming, a day of cruelty, rage, burning anger, make the land destitute, and he will annihilate the sinners from it. It calls out a second time. He forms mountains and creates winds. He recounts to a person what were his deeds. And at that time, as the person is facing this initial level of judgment, the person sits and listens to the testimony and acknowledges that it's all righteous and is all indeed true. At that time, the rooster calls out and says, Who does not fear you, O king of the nations? And the body in this time, the body hears the ruling and it acknowledges that it is true. And the Golden Villain brings another midrash here. It says that the ways of God are different than the ways of mankind. If you have a human king, what happens when a human king sentences someone to death? They have to gag the guilty party, because otherwise he'd be raining maledictions and curses upon the king. Whereas the Holy One, blessed is he, God, when someone is sentenced to death, that person is totally silent, because the ruling is completely just, and the person knows it and acknowledges it. And that's the meaning here, that the body or the sailors, they offered a sacrifice to God, they took vows, they accepted what happened to it with understanding and with love.
That's the first chapter based upon this level brought to us by the Gona Vilna. So chapter two begins, God prepares a large fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So the Gona Vilna explains, the fish is a reference to the grave. Now, if you read that simply, it makes sense. Okay, the, the person's dead, and what do we do with the body? We put it in the grave. But it's interesting that Jonah, in the analogy, it's not the body. Jonah is the soul. And we typically understand that after separation of body and soul, the body goes to the grave. And the soul goes back to heaven, goes back to its origin. The soul goes to its origin. The body goes to its origin. The body comes from dust. It goes back to dust. The soul comes from heaven. It goes back to heaven. That's our understanding. And here we see that for three days and three nights, the soul or Jonah in this analogy is in the fish, i.e. is in the grave. So the way the Gona Villain explains this is that this person in this analogy is someone who has not yet fulfilled his mission. So there are stool responsibilities on the docket for the soul. But because the soul has been separated from the body, it's no longer feasible for the soul to effectuate its mission. It's got a checklist, tasks to do, and it can't do it. And it realizes that there are very steep consequences for not fulfilling its job, its mission. That it was it was delivered by God. So it's desperately trying to be restored to the body to be given another chance. It wants to resuscitate the body. So it's hanging out in the grave. And for the first three days after death, the soul's under the impression that this is still reversible. The body is still warm. The body is still, maybe I could somehow be infused back into the body and, you know, restart the engine, resuscitate it, give us another chance. Maybe I could still fulfill the mission before going to have to face God, before going to have to face the judge and not having accomplished what I, what I was instructed to do before I was placed into the body. So for three days, Jonah is hovering, so to speak, the soul is hovering over the body. Maybe we could have another chance. But after three days, it senses, it's clear actually, that the the body starts to disfigure, starts to decompose, and it becomes evident to all, including Jonah, including the soul, that it is no longer feasible, at least in this variety of the body, for the soul to once again be animated in. So what happens? Now it's clear to the soul that it's in trouble and it starts to pray. In the second verse of chapter 2, Jonah prayed to Hashem as God from the belly of the fish. Now, again, we mentioned this last time. I want to say it briefly again. Every time in the book of Jonah that there is a uh, a change between masculine and feminine, as we know, Hebrew words, like many languages, they have a masculine variety and a feminine variety. Every time there's a change, that's noteworthy. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, God provided a fish, a dug, which is the Hebrew word for a fish, to swallow Jonah. But that is the masculine version of the fish. And the next verse, Jonah's calling out to God, daga. Daga is also a fish, but it's the feminine version of that word. It's also a fish, but it's a feminine version. So again, the Gona Vilna, the way he explains it, is that there's different junctures, there's different levels 
of post-life or post-death, post-mortem locales in which the soul is ushered in. Initially, it's under the domain of this angel called Duma. We'll put that on the side. And then it ends up in a second place, which is called Gehenom. More about that in a little bit. And it's appropriate, he says fittingly, that the initial juncture, the initial stage is of a masculine version and the subsequent one is of a feminine version. And the rest of the chapter is going to be Jonah's prayer or the soul's prayer to God from its very precarious state. He calls out to God, in my trouble, I called out to the Lord and he answered me from the belly of Sheol. Sheol is one of the names given to purgatory, to hell, to Gehenna. In Jewish literature, I cried out and you heard my voice. So Jonah is making, or the soul is making this impassioned plea to God in my lifetime, when I was still alive, when I was still married with the body, when I called out to God, you always answered. Now I need you more than ever. Hear me now. And he starts to describe the situation in which he's in. You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The rivers engulfed me. All your breakers and waves swept over me. These are descriptions, again, on on one level, it's actually Jonah and the fish, the individual on that simple level. But on this allegorical level, it's a description of what the soul is undergoing now as a result of not completing its mission in its lifetime. Now it's having to have its its debts are being called in and he's describing what he's undergoing. So he's being cast into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the rivers are engulfing him. If you remember, in chapter 1, Jonah told the sailors that he comes from the other side of the river, which means that Jonah, the soul, originates from a different place, a different dimension, a different realm, And that realm was separated from our realm by this river of fire. And, of course, to go one way is a lot easier than to go the other way. Initially, the soul was pure and it was able to pass through that river of fire without being harmed at all. But now, as a result of the actions that the soul participated or conspired with the body in for the duration of its life, it's got to go back through that fire, back through that river, And that's not pleasant at all. It's being purged of sin, but it's crying out to God. This is, this is more than it anticipated. All the breakers, all the waves are sweeping over me. The soul or Jonah in this, in this analogy is crying out to God saying, okay, I've done my share. I've paid my debt. I've been adequately purified, refined, purged of my sin. I don't want to be punished anymore. And he continues, I thought I was driven away out of your sight, but I will gaze again upon your holy temple. The way this is explained is that the soul, when it was cast into this Gehenna place, it was worried, it was concerned that the worst possible outcome was its fate. What's the worst possible outcome? Of course, the best outcome is that it it did the mission. It's given the badge. It's sent to heaven. Things are great. The worst outcome is not to end up in Gehenna, at least temporarily, but to not be given any clear directive as to where it's going next. It was concerned that it wouldn't be judged and it wouldn't be given another chance and it would be forever in a state of eternal limbo and 
eternal agony. It was worried, the soul was, Jonah was, that it was driven away out of God's side, almost as if God's ignoring it, and it's never going to get out of the morass, of the of the abyss in which it has been placed. But now he's comforted, after he's gone through this process, he's comforted, I will still yet again, yet again gaze upon your holy temple. In this instance, it's a reference to it being purified, this being a positive process, and ultimately, it will go to the temple, which is a reference to Allah, which is a reference to the ultimate desire, the, the, the place where the soul covets to go, there's a place called Olamba, the natural, the afterworld, the afterlife, and that is where its its ultimate destiny is. Now he's comforted after it's gone through this purification process. The soul is comforted by the fact that it will still have this legacy and this destiny. As a sidebar, we see that there is a description here from the Zohar. Again, these things are a little bit scary, but... It's worthwhile to know it, I guess. It, it's a description of the purification of this Gehenna place. It talks about the body and the soul. Both of them are conspirators of the sin. Both of them are conspirators of the lack of obedience to God. And both of them are judged independently. The body is judged in the grave, turns into dust. The soul is judged in this place, Gehenna, until it's been cleansed. And after it's been cleansed, well, then now it's pure. And I think, again, this is an important theme in, in Jewish eschatology, the idea that at least the description that we have over here of Gehenim, it's not a place really of punishment. It's more like a place of, of purification and of, of cleansing. And in fact, I want to point out in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 20, Moses is giving his last final message to the people. And he talks about how God took them out of Egypt, mikur habarzel, from the iron crucible. The Egyptian experience, hundreds of years being enslaved to the Egyptians, is described in Jewish literature in the scripture as being an iron crucible. Rashi explains, what does that mean? What's an iron crucible? It's a place, it's a vessel in which gold is being purified. What's implied over there is that the Jewish people they were gold. Of course, they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's something really special about this people. But there were still some imperfections. And in order to be cleansed, in order to be refined, in order to be purified, had to go through this experience. Now, it's a bigger subject as to how exactly the Egyptian exile is remediative. Like, how does it function as an iron crucible? But that's the theme. That's the idea. And similarly, over here, we have the soul. The soul's gold. The soul comes from the other side of that river. The soul is from heaven. It's it's from a place that it's in close proximity to God. And it comes over here and it gets tainted. It gets sullied. It gets dirty. It develops alloys. It's still gold. It just needs to be cleansed a little bit. And that's that's the picture that we're being described over here of what Jonah, what the soul is going through. And it continues, the waters closed over me, the deep engulfed me, the reeds were tangled around my head. This is a description of what it's going through, da- various different layers of, of this place called Gehenna, and this idea that their reeds are tangled in it. That's a description of, of all those impurifications that are wrapped up in the gold. And that's a theme that we see throughout Jewish literature, that what happens to the soul when the soul makes a blunder is that it gets it gets impured, it gets sullied, it gets it gets damaged almost, 
and the sin, so to speak, cleaves to the soul, and it becomes very hard to separate those two. And as a result, the soul becomes impure. And here's the process that we have of untangling, of disentangling all those sins. In fact, the Talmud, the Gon of Vilna here in his commentary, he quotes from the Talmud that talk about uh, people doing a sin and that grasps onto them. It's almost, and one example it says, talks about Joseph. When Joseph was being seduced by the wife of Potiphar, it says that he did not want to be with her and he did not want to lie with her. These are extra words. And whenever the Torah gives us extra words, it's hinting at extra things. What does it mean that he didn't want to lie with her? He didn't want to be with her. So Rashi there says, quoting from the Talmud, that he didn't want to lie with her in this world and he didn't want to be with her in next world. Implying from that, that had Joseph sinned, this would not be a one-off event. The The effects of that would be cleaving to him forever or at least until in the afterlife, it had to be removed. That's the idea. There's another source here. Uh, it describes uh, that that the sin could bind itself to someone like a dog. Like there's some dogs, when it bites, there's nothing you could do to get to 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 remove that. A similar idea that there's, there's entanglement, there is a fusion that happens when the sin, so to speak, cleaves to the soul. I want to add, the Talmud tells us the book of Brachos, page 8a, that there's 903 different types of death in the world. And the best of them is called Nishika. And the worst of them is called Askara. And Nishika, says the Talmud, it's equivalent to extracting a hair out of a glass of milk. Seamless, painless, no problem. What that means is that the, that the soul and the Yitzhahara, the soul, the, the pure gold, it hasn't been tampered with. It hasn't been infiltrated by the sin, and you just pull it out, the body and soul are separated painlessly and seamlessly. That's the best kind of death. The worst kind of death is Askra. Well, Askra is equivalent, says the Talmud, to a tuft of wool that has been infiltrated by branches of thorns. And of course, to separate those two, it's a nightmare because They've become so enmeshed with each other that it's impossible to really pull it out. And even when you do pull it out, there's going to be flecks of wool that come out with the with the thorns, the little bits of thorns that are still there. It's not seamless at all. And that's a description, again, that as a result of your behavior, the soul actually changes. The physiology of the soul is influenced by the person's behavior. That's the idea here that we see that the reeds are entangled, that Jonah is describing what's happening to him. He he comes with the reeds entangled, and now it's the time to to disentangle them, but that's not very pleasant. At this juncture, Jonah is certain that you know, he hasn't been answered yet. He's certain that Gehenna, this state is going to be forever. So he cries out to God to be saved. I sank to the base of the mountains. I'm going deeper and deeper into this abyss. The bars of the earth closed upon me forever. Lift my life up from the pit, oh God. Get me out of here. I'm in such trouble and it's getting worse and worse. I thought I thought I thought I went through the worst of it, and now things are getting even worse. And then he begins to start invoking the merits that he has. 
When my life was ebbing away, I called the Lord to mind, and my prayer came before you in your holy temple. The soul is trying to now list the merits that it has to use that as a means to be extracted from this hellish nightmare, from this inferno. And it is invoking that during its illness, it tried to repent. And even though it didn't forestall the death sentence, maybe it will be sufficient merit to be rescued from its current location. And then he points out that he really isn't as bad as everyone else. Those who cling to empty folly forsake their own welfare. Now Jonah is talking about its merits, the soul's merits in its lifetime. It wasn't like the people who cling to folly. There are people who who really don't understand what life's all about. They solely focus on trying to hoard and to stockpile their material gifts. But Jonah is acknowledging that those who cling to the empty folly, they're forsaking their own welfare. They're imperiling their own future. By doing that, they're mismanaging the wealth that God gave them. Its true purpose was to do kindness. And I'm not like those people, even my lifetime. Yes, maybe I was a sinner, but you know what? I wasn't as bad as other people. I still, at least, you know, my heart of hearts, I still knew really what life was all about. And then at verse 10, the soul confesses with a voice of gratitude. I'm going to sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will perform. Deliverance is the Lord's. Commentaries point out that the term gratitude in Hebrew, it shares the word with confession. Because both of them are acknowledgement of, of the, a truth. When someone sins, they confess their knowledge and the truth. When someone else does something good for you, and you show gratitude, you're acknowledging the gratitude that someone else did to you. At this juncture, Jonah, or the, the soul in the analogy, is completing their repentance, has been purified to the degree that they're acknowledging that they were in the wrong, and now it's the time for them to be cleansed, to be expiated from their sin, and to be spared a life sentence, and to be restored to the domain of the souls. After this process is over, God commanded the fish, and the fish spewed Jonah back onto the dry land. Now the soul, Jonah, has been cleansed, has been purified, and now it's been spit back onto the dry land, as we spoke about last time. In the analogy, the dry land is the place where the soul is at ease, it's at comfort, it's it's where it is, it's home for the soul, and whenever it's at sea, that's when it's again in that very rocky relationship with the body and its future is very much in doubt. As a result of the purification described in chapter 2, Jonah's now, the soul has been cleansed. Now, it's important to note that the state of the soul before it was cleansed or before it went to initially joined, joined the body and now after it joined the body and it became corrupted and now it was purified, it's not the same soul. It's, yes, it's cleansed, but there are some scars, as we shall see. There are some lingering effects of this process. Yes, it's been purified, but it's not quite as pure as it was initially, as we shall see. But now, once again, the soul has been restored to the domicile of souls. And now it's in a place called Ganeiden. What that means is separate discussion. But now it's once again surrounded by other souls. And once again, 
awaiting its turn to be married again with a body and to be once again given the mission that it was given initially. Now it's going for round two. That's the end of chapter two, a description of the purification of the soul where all the sins of the previous lifetime are removed, are cleansed, are purified, are refined, and now it's time for it to once again get in queue and once again wait for its turn. And you know what happens? Chapter 3 is describing the soul on round 2, and this time getting things right. But it's also going to highlight specifically the role that Yom Kippur and the high holidays that they play in repentance and in the soul fulfilling its mission. So, chapter 3 begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is a description of the soul being reincarnated and given the exact same mission as it was given in round 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, go to the great city and proclaim it what I will tell you. Unlike the first time, when Jonah, when the soul tried to escape and go to a different place, go to Tarshish, and not obey the will of God, this time Jonah obliges. He goes to Nineveh in accordance with the Lord's command. And then we're told Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to walk across it. An unusual statistic about the size of the city. So the way the Gona Vilna explains this is that the righteous, they walk with God every day. In fact, we're told many times in the Torah we should walk in the ways of God. We should walk with God. Abraham walked with God. That's a refrain, that's a motif that repeats itself throughout the Torah. Here we're told the city of Nineveh wasn't like that. It was a three days walk across, which means that there was three days that it walked with God. There was three days where it took God seriously. And they are, number one, the first day of Elul. The first day of Elul, Elul is the repentance season. The first day we start blowing the shofar. And that's that one day that took God seriously. And then, of course, the other two days are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And God sends the soul, okay, now it's your job, it's your mission to take a city that's a three days walk across and transform it into a city that's always walking with God. And the narrative is going to show how the high holidays are so central to getting it right the second time. So Jonah starts out, makes his way to the city, and he travels a distance of one day. And he proclaims, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. So again, the first day that he arrives, that's a description of the first of these three days that it takes seriously. That's the first day, Rosh Chodesh Elul. And the soul is trying to awaken man to repent. And he screams out, there's only 40 days until a judgment is rendered on Yom Kippur. And we know that there's exactly 40 days from the beginning of the month of Elul until Yom Kippur. And you know what? It's working. The people of Nineveh, they believe in God. And they proclaim a fast. And the great and the small alike, they put on sackcloth. And even the king makes dramatic moves. The news reaches the king of Nineveh. He gets up from his throne. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth. And he sits in ashes. The entire people, they put on sackcloth. The king goes a step further. He actually sits in ashes. So there's two points here. First of all, you'll notice that the people, they begin their process of repentance earlier. And only subsequently does the king begin his process. What that's hinting at tells us, the commentary, that the king is a representation of people who are haughty, people who are aloof, people who feel supreme. And we see here that this is antithetical to God. 
The hardest thing to change is the feeling of supremacy. For someone who can do no wrong, repentance is very difficult because repentance, by definition, is acknowledgement of one's flaws. So the king, it takes him a while. Everyone else is already on board and only subsequently does the king remove his crown, get off the throne, don the sackcloth, sit in the ashes. That's number one. Number two, we see that the whole town, they put on sackcloth and close the morning of trying to, to really take things seriously. And the king goes a step further and he sits in the ashes. And what that's hinting at is that to the degree of someone's greatness, of someone's haughtiness, they have to go in the opposite direction. So for the average Joe, it's sufficient for them to just put on the sackcloth. The king was high and mighty. He has to go even further. He has to sit in the ashes. The greater you are, the higher your stature, the more humility you must embrace. In fact, he quotes here from the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that when there is a crisis, and the most common example is that there is a drought in the land of Israel, so there were times when the, the Sanhedrin would decree and would declare that there is a fast day. Everyone's got to fast. And the Mishnah describes that they would, they would put a bunch of ashes on top of a, of, of, of a stand and they would take it and apply it to the, to the head, to the forehead of the great leaders. So the head of the Sanhedrin, the Nasi, those people, they would apply it on their forehead and everyone else would come apply it on their own forehead. And the Talmud asks the question, the Talmud says, wait a minute, why is it applied to the forehead of the great leaders, but the average people, the regular folk, they apply to their own foreheads. And the answer is because that's more embarrassing. When someone applies the ashes to your forehead, it's more embarrassing. And when you're the leader, when you're the Nasi, in order for you to have the same degree of repentance, you have to go that much further. You have to have someone else apply it to you. Continues the verse. The word was called out throughout Ninveh by decree of the king, which the Gohan explains it refers to God, and his nobles, which is the Sanhedrin. No man or beast or herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not graze. They shall not drink water. This is part of the purification process. And every person here, every description of, of, of an entity is different kinds of people. No man. A man, that's referring to someone who's who's taking life seriously. It's someone who's studying Torah, someone who's more righteous, nor beast. Beast is a description of someone who's not taking life seriously. Someone who's ignorant to matters of Torah. And even that, it falls into two categories. There's the livestock, and then there are the sheep. There's the herds, the larger animals, which kind of operate on their own. And then there's a flock who are led by the shepherd. Even amongst the ignorant, says the going to Vilna, there's two, they fall into two categories. There are the ones who say, I'm independent. Not only am I not a Torah scholar, I'm not even going to follow the Torah scholars. And then the other ones who say, listen, I'm not a Torah scholar, but I'm like the sheep of the flock. I'm going to follow the guidance of the shepherd. Everyone, they all have to join on board, not to taste anything, not to graze, not to drink water. That's a description of the fasting of Yom Kippur. Everyone on this day has to have a total disavowal of the physical, of the mundane, of the bodily. Cover yourself with sackcloth, humble yourself. Man and beast, Torah scholar and non-Torah scholar alike. Cry out mightily to God 
everyone turn their back away from their evil ways and from the robbery of which he is guilty. And again, like we do today on Yom Kippur, you pay special attention to the interpersonal sins. Yom Kippur, it absolves the sins between you and God, but the sins between you and your fellow man, you have to do it yourself. You have to make sure that you amend and you right those wrongs. And finally, we have repentance. He who knows, let him repent, and God will relent, turn away from his wrath, and make him not perish. This is a description of people who did sins willfully, who did sins wantonly, and it's time for them to repent, or else they bear their iniquity, or else they'll be guilty when they leave the world. So this is a description here of this multi-layered repentance process that's following the high holiday schedule that we have. We have 40 days, we have the announcement on day one, and we have this clarion call for repentance, we have this humbling ourselves, we have the denial of the physical, because that's going to amplify the spiritual, and indeed, it works. Thanks to the repentance, thanks to their humbling of themselves, God saw what they did, this is verse 10, how they returned their backs away from the evil ways, God renounced the punishment they had planned to bring upon them and did not carry out as a result of their acts of repentance. But more specifically, their actual repentance, God seals a good judgment for them on Yom Kippur. So thus ends chapter 3, which is a description again of the soul, Jonah, coming back for the second round, being reincarnated, and this time getting things right and using the high holidays as a means to really hammer home the message of repentance to humanity. Typically, we we have three days that we take life seriously. When the repentance process, when the repentance season begins, when we first hear the shofar, that day we take seriously. And Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, of course, everyone takes that seriously. But of course, the message that the soul was placed in our body, in our world, the message that it is tasked with conveying is that we have to take that, that feeling that seriousness, take that with us throughout the year. And if we do that, God's going to ensure that indeed we will have fulfilled our mission and we're going to have a fantastic year upcoming. Thus ends chapter three. And chapter four is probably the most difficult chapter of all the chapters of Jonah. On the simple understanding, really the story should be over, right? You know, Jonah, he, he blundered the first time. He was successful the second time. And you know what? The city of Nineveh repented and things worked out great for them. And then there's this whole postscript of Jonah being all depressed, being despondent, having the ricinous plant sprouting up and then losing it. It's a very unusual postscript to the story. And the way it's explained on our level is that this chapter is referring to the state of the soul in its second, maybe even more than second, go-throughs. What are the consequences of it being reincarnated? As you mentioned uh, earlier, the effects of the soul not getting things right the first time are going to linger even after it was purified. That's going to be the subject of, of chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins, Jonah is sad, Jonah is despondent, Jonah is upset for two reasons. This displeased Jonah greatly, and he was aggrieved. It's not so clear exactly what's the matter. You you did your job. You came to Nineveh. 
They bought what you were selling. They repented. It seems like you should be all clear, all good. But there's two reasons why he's upset. He's he's displeased greatly and he is aggrieved. So the way that the Gonaville explains this is that this is the state of someone's life on this planet. On the second round, that state really hinges upon the origins of his soul. Meaning you're going to feel the effects in this round from actions that you didn't do in this round from the state of your soul in the previous rounds. And that's going to cause you great distress because you're like, ah, this, that wasn't me. That was some other version of me. And why am I suffering for what happened lifetimes ago? So the way he explains this is based upon several teachings in the Talmud. And it's it's amazing because you read these teachings in the Talmud and they make sense. They're very famous teachings in the Talmud, but he's going to layer them and, 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 and weave them into this tapestry based upon very, very deep ideas, very Kabbalistic interpretations of very famous teachings in the Talmud. So for example, in the book of Moed Cotton, page 28a, there is a famous citation from Rava. Rava is the most common name of a sage in the Talmud is Rava. And he says that three things don't depend on merit, rather on mazel. What are these three themes? Life, children, sustenance. Bani Chayamazoni. These three themes don't depend on merit, rather on mazel. So what does mazel mean? So typically mazel means, the word mazel means luck, like mazel tov, good luck, or, or omens, or things that are not in your control, things that are predestined. It's not so clear what it means. It explains the going to Vilna. Merit is a reference to how you're behaving in this round. Mazel is a reference to how you behaved in last round. And therefore, these three things, Bani Chaim Zoni, your children, your progeny, your life, and your sustenance, it doesn't matter what you do, what you're doing right now. It matters what you did last time. It's not in the schus, in the merit, i.e., in how you're acting in this go-through, but in your previous incarnations, that is what determines it. Jonah's He's he's depressed. He's like, I did my job. And why are things going so poorly for me? I fulfilled my mission. And in the question of merits, I, does anyone more, more meritorious than Jonah in round two? He was given the mission and he executed his mission perfectly. And yet he's depressed. Yet he's sad. He's like, I, I don't get it. I did everything right. And just nothing's working out for me. And he's sad for that reason. And what we're, we're being told here is that this is the result of not Jonah round two, but Jonah round one, the soul in round one, those effects are still influencing its behavior now. And then the Don Vilner quotes, this was so mind-blowing to me, the Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 7a. It's a very famous teaching in the Talmud, in fact, we've spoken about in the past. It talks about the question of theodicy, why bad things happen to good people. And the Talmud says that Moses... In the aftermath of the golden, golden calf story, Moses is elevated to this very high level, and he starts asking God for answers to very vexing questions. And one of the questions that he asks, four questions. How come you have a righteous person and things are good for them? And then on the flip side, you have a righteous person and things are bad for them. You have a wicked person and things are good for them, and a wicked person and things are bad for them. We don't seem to find cause and effect between people's behavior and between things that happen to them. What's the meaning behind it? 
And God responds to him. Well, if you have a righteous person and things are good for them, that's a righteous person, the son of a righteous person. And if you have a righteous person and things are bad for them, that's a righteous person, the son of a wicked person. And if you have a wicked person and things are good for them, that's a wicked person, the son of a righteous person. And if you're a wicked person and things are wicked for them, that's a wicked person, the son of a wicked person. Essentially what he's telling you is that, yes, what determines what happens to you in this life has nothing to do with how you are right now. It has to do with who your father was. So if you're a, w- a wicked person, but your father is righteous, some things will be good for you. If you're a wicked person, your father's wicked, things will be bad for you. If you're a righteous person, your father was also righteous, things will be good for you. If you're a righteous person th- and, and things are bad for you, that means your father was wicked. That's the simple understanding of, of the Talmud. Now I want to point out, the Talmud go- goes on to give other answers to this question, and it's a bit subject to the question of theodicy. It explains the going to Vilna in light of this, uh, of this interpretation here. When it says the righteous person, the son of a righteous person, that does not mean that your father was righteous. That means that you're a righteous person in this round. The son of a righteous person previously, in your previous round, you were also a righteous person. And thus, your material well-being in this life is a reflection of your righteousness in last life. And the way the Talmud is hiding this idea, it's not, it doesn't say like the righteous person who also was a righteous person last time. The way it describes it is the righteous person, the son of the righteous person. But that's kind of wink, wink, hint. Righteous person in this round and righteous person in the previous incarnation. So Jonah, he's he's very displeased. He says, wait a minute, I'm righteous. I, I actually did what God sent me to this world to do. And th- nothing's working out for me. And he doesn't realize, maybe he does realize, that he is righteous, but he's the son of the wicked person. Meaning, in this round he's righteous, but in the previous round, he was wicked. He did disobey the instruction, the explicit instruction of God. And now he's suffering as a result of his decisions last time. And that's the first reason why he is displeased. And then the verse continues that not only was he displeased, but he was also grieved. There was another element, another wrinkle to his disappointment, and that is the fact that he sees the city of Nineveh. I mean, he, he comes as a messenger of God, so to speak, to Nineveh. A city of sinners. And they turn things around on a dime. And what happens to them? Not only do they merit to be repented and to be expiated and to become close to God, not only do they have next world, they have this world too. And Jonah's like, I'm the one who's coming here and I'm teaching them about God. And you know what? They learn. And what happens to me? Everything in this world goes down the tubes for me. And for them, they have everything. And he's so grieved by the fact that these people managed to have everything, also this world and also the next world. That's a common theme. There's many, again, many citations for this. For example, the Godavilla brings, uh, there's three places in the Talmud where Talmud, the Talmud tells stories of people who repented. People who lived a life of sin, at the very end of their life repented. And the Talmud concludes by all these three stories that these people merited to earn Olmaba, they earned the afterlife in one hour. Most people need to spend 70 years, a whole lifetime, to try to get Olmaba. And these people, in one hour, with one act of martyrdom, with one act of gallantry, with one great deed, they changed their whole destiny on a dime. And as a result, the Talmud says that the great rabbis started crying. And they're crying because we have to suffer so much in this world 
only to earn our ticket, our golden ticket to Omaba. And these people, they're having a great time in this world. And at the very last moment, they flip the switch and they end up with everything. They have this world and they have next world. And that's another reason why Jonah's so upset. Because he's suffering in this world. And there's nothing he can really do about it, apparently. Maybe there is something, as we shall see. But there's nothing that he can seem to be doing about it. And then he sees the people of Nineveh and things are going swimmingly for them, both here and there. So what does Jonah do? He starts to pray to God for his sustenance. This is verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord saying, please, O Lord, isn't this just what I said when I was still my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish. For I know that you're compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. The soul in round two is praying that God alleviates its suffering as a result of its previous incarnation. And he says, listen, my previous lifetime, that he didn't repent, he fled to Tarshish, he pursued the material desires, and he thought, maybe, you know what, at the end I'll have enough time to repent to remedy my misdeeds before I died. But of course, he didn't have time. But he thought that God's slow to anger, God's abounding in kindness, he would have enough time to be able to repent before he died. And now he's being punished because he didn't have time to repent. And he wants to have God provide his sustenance now in this world, in his second go-through, because, you know, the sins of his first go-through, he wasn't so bad because he thought he would repent. He thought he would have time to repent. And then he tells God, you know, if if you don't alleviate my suffering, just kill me. Please, Lord, take my life. I'd rather die than live. He, he was suffering so much in this world in the second go-round as a result of his actions in the previous go-round that he wanted to die. And the, the go-round brings a, a very um, difficult story from the Talmud. It talks about the great sage, Rabbi Elazar ben Pedas, who's very poor, he had nothing to eat. And he collapsed, and he fainted, and he started laughing, and he started crying. So what's going on? So Talmud explains that this great sage, when he collapsed, when he fainted, he had a revelation, and he asked God, well, how much longer will I suffer? And God says to him, there's nothing you could do to end your suffering. There's nothing you could do. It's baked into your mazel, so to speak. It's baked in to the actions of your previous life. There's nothing you could do. I'll have to destroy the world and start from scratch again to be able to bring about a change in your fortunes. And then he asked, well, how much longer am I going to have to suffer? Did I did I already do more than 50% of my suffering? He says, yes, okay, well, you know what? In that case, don't restart from scratch. Don't destroy the world and start from scratch so that you could create me under a different influence and, I, and things could work out for me. So again, there's this, this idea that that Jonah is like, if things can't change, I can't handle it. It's too much to bear. Kill me. I'd rather die than live. And there's a very interesting, again, famous Talmudic teaching that is being presented in the Kabbalistic light over here by the going of Vilna. He's saying he'd rather die than live. So typically it means, the way we understand it is that he wants to die now. But the way they're going to explains it is that it's better once someone dies, round one, your soul comes, the soul lives, the soul dies or soul separate from the body, 
it's better for him to stay dead than to come back to life. And he uses this to explain a Talmud, one of the most difficult teachings in the Talmud, the book of Erevin, 13b. The Talmud tells us that the schools of Shammai and Hillel had a two and a half year long debate. So the great academies of Israel had a two and a half year long debate over the following question. Is it better for a person to exist, to live, or to not exist? Are we better off living or not living? One opinion said, it's better for a person to have never been created than to have been created. That would be preferable. The other opinion says that no, it's better for a person to, yes, have been created than to have not been created. That was the debate, two and a half years I debated this subject. After vigorous extended debate, the resolution was as follows. It is indeed preferable for man to have not been created than to be created. But now that you're created, you should examine your deeds. Now, there's many obvious questions to this to this Talmudic narrative. You know, of course, we believe that God created us. How is it possible for someone to consider that that's a bad thing? Not only that, the sages, not only they considered it, they actually concluded that it's better for a person to have not been created than to be created. How is that a reasonable position? Moreover, the postscript is that now that you're created, now that you're created, examine your deeds. Seems like a very bizarre directive. What it should have said, now that you're created, do mitzvot, study Torah, do kindness. What does it mean, examine your deeds? So again, the one villain explains it in the Kabbalistic light. This Talmud is not discussing in general the creation of man. Is it better for man to create or man for, is better for not, man to not be created? Rather, it's discussing man in round two. You lived. You died. There's two options now. You could come back to life or you could stay dead. That was the debate. Is it better for a person to be reincarnated or not be reincarnated? According to one opinion, yes. After all, once you're dead, once you're sold and separate from the body, you can never do it. You can't do any more mitzvos. And therefore, if you have the opportunity to do more mitzvos, to be given life for the second time, it's better, it's preferable for you to be created round two than to not be created round two, to stay dead. One opinion. The second opinion is no. It's better to have perfected yourself in the first incarnation so that you won't need a second reincarnation. That's the debate. Now that you were created, now that you were reincarnated, examine your ways, examine your deeds. Very deep insight here. If someone was created once and they blundered and now they come back a second time, they have a more narrower focus than the creation of man in general. The primary objective, the second go-around, is to try to fix specifically the areas that you blundered the first time. First time you were here, that's, that's the primary life. And the, the areas that you that you stumbled over, those are the areas that specifically you need to focus on. So that was, what does the Talmud say? It's better for you to not be created, to not come back a second time. But now that you were created, now that you were brought back a second time, you should examine your deeds. You should try to reverse engineer. You should try to figure out what was your life 
or what was the particular areas in your life that you made a mistake last time, examine your deeds and find out what exactly it is, the specific nature of your mission, what you need to fix. Now, the obvious question is, I don't even remember what I was as a child. Some people don't even remember what they ate for breakfast. How am I supposed to remember what happened to me before this lifetime, a lifetime ago? Incidentally, I had a discussion with someone recently who told me that I have a hunch I'm actually the reincarnation of this person. So I told him, well, I actually have a hunch I'm the reincarnation of that person. So who knows? I probably should edit that out of the podcast, right? <laughs> Which you sound very weird. I'm, I'm, I'll keep it in. If anyone's listening still at this point, they'll, they'll forgive me. How do you know what the areas that you, that you floundered in previous lifetime? So the Golden Villa tells us something very, very powerful. He says, when a soul becomes acculturated to sin, it develops a taste, it develops habits, it develops a desire, it develops a dependency for those particular sins. And you have to find the particular areas in your life where you struggle the most, either because you keep on making the same mistake again and again, and you seem to be helpless to try to fix it, or you see, you keep on desiring, you keep on coveting the same thing, and it, it's like the, this, this fascination that you have, that you're, you're so allured, you're so desirous of something, that's the area where your soul messed up last time, and that's the area where you particularly need to focus on. Yes, of course, in general, the idea, you know, for hair, we should do Torah, we should do mitzvahs, but specifically, fashish myself, examine your deeds to find out what particular area you need to focus on, and that is where you probably faltered last time, and where you should focus on particularly this time. So Jonah is so despondent, he's praying to have his material situation improved in this world, and God says to him, no, sorry, he doesn't accept his request, tells him not to be envious of the people of Nineveh, the people who have everything, and he responds to him, are you that deeply aggrieved? And then we, we transition the story, Jonah does something else. Jonah leaves the city, he finds a place to the east of the city, he makes a booth, he sits there in the shade to find out what happens to the city. Simply put, he wants to just examine, see what's going to happen to the city, and therefore he goes to the east of the city, makes a booth. Of course, there's a lot of meaning behind each one of these clauses. The way the Gordon explains it is that the soul, it realizes it can only have one world. And therefore it embraces and dwells in the Kedem, which means the east of the city, but the word also means kodem, which means that that preceded, it decides to dwell in Torah that preceded the world. He makes a booth, which is the Hebrew word for that, is a sukkah. A sukkah is a temporary housing. A sukkah is the greatest manifestation, greatest embodiment of someone who says, life over here is temporary. And therefore, let me sit in a temporary dwelling. Because really, I'm focusing on the next world. And Jonah is now at this time is like, okay, well, I can only have one world. Let me have the next world. And therefore, let me make everything in this world, let me assign it its correct temporality. I'm going to live in, in the booth. And you know what? Let's see what happens in the city. Maybe these deeds will actually change my fortune. Maybe my prospect will change. Maybe my mazel will change. Who knows? And indeed, things get better for him. The Lord provided the ricinous plant, the kikayon. It grows up over Jonah. It provides shade for him. It saves him from the discomfort. And Jonah's very happy about the plant. 
The soul was desperate to alleviate its earthly suffering and to a certain degree it kind of gave up on that. It said, you know what, let me focus on Torah, let me focus on the Kedem, let me go to the east of the city, maybe my fortunes will improve. And God says, you know what, let, let's have his fortunes improve. And with godly intervention, the Kikayon sprouts up. And Jonah's very happy about that. Jonah's delighted. But what he doesn't realize is that actually his fortunes really didn't change. His mazel, so to speak, the way things are are destined to happen in this world, they didn't change. But things did improve for him for a different way, for a different reason. He was so desperate to get rid of his earthly suffering that God says, you know what? I'm going to give him a down payment from his heavenly reward. And there's many examples to this theme, to this idea we mentioned in the past. Rabbi Hanida ben Dosa, one of the great sages of, of the Mishnahic era, destitute, so poor, and his wife tells him, how much more can we suffer? So the rabbi goes and prays, and he's delivered from heaven a golden leg of a table. So he goes and says, okay, well, things improved. And she has a dream, and they're in heaven, and all the righteous people are everywhere, and everyone's got a table with three legs that holds it steady, and they're holding a table with only two legs because they got a down payment of the third leg that would provide it stability, made it sturdy. They got that in this world. And she says, you know what? I'm not interested. Go return it to God. Problem is there's no return policy. <laughs> Yet, Rabbi Kinnamur Dose goes and he prays and, and a heavenly hand comes and takes back the golden table leg. Jonah's delighted. Jonah's like, wow, look, things are improving for me. What he doesn't realize is that there's nothing he can do to fundamentally change his mazel, his fortunes, and the good times that he had are merely a deduction of his olam haba. And then Jonah's taught a lesson. The pleasures of this world are transitory. They're fleeting. The next day he wakes up and God provides a worm, attaches the plant, and it withers. The sun rises. God provides a stifling wind, and now Jonah loses everything, his material security that he had with this plant. But in addition, he also lost his spiritual focus. The way it's described here, he became bald on both sides. It's a description of the of this man who uh, who was uh, had salt and pepper hair, but had two wives, one old wife and one young wife. And the old wife was not happy that he had the black hairs. She wanted him to be like him, so she pulled out all the black hairs. But his young wife was disappointed that he had the white hairs. She wanted him to be just, just to have black hairs. So she pulled out all the white hairs and he ended up bald from both sides. He had nothing. That's what the Talmud says. Similarly, you have Jonah. He had the spiritual world. Then he, then he was tempted with the physical world. He got this Kikayon down payment and he neglected his spiritual pursuit. And now he's bald from both sides. And again, he's like, I'd rather just die. He begged for death. This is too much pain to, to absorb. God says to him, are you so upset about this material losses? And Jonah says, absolutely. Are you deeply aggrieved about the plant? Yes, he replied, so deeply that I want to die. When Jonah's material conditions improved, it became a central focus of his life. He abandoned the Torah, and now that he lost it, he really has nothing. And his life lost its meaning. So the Lord responded to him, you cared about the plant, you didn't work for it. 
It, you didn't cause it to grow. It just appeared overnight and it perished overnight. The fortune that you had in this world, in this world that's compared to night, it was made overnight and likewise it was lost overnight. You cared so much about the material pleasures that you lost. It makes total sense, concludes the book, that God cares about the world, the ninveh, the handiwork of God, the place where the object of his creation can be fulfilled. And the final verse of the book, and should I not care about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand and many beasts as well. And again, whenever we're describing people here, it's a reference to people that are righteous. There's 120,000 righteous people and many beasts, many people who are not righteous. Very interesting, again, description here. And every one of these ideas, and we skipped a lot, I just want to point out. We did skip a lot, skip a lot of, of the sun and what the sun means and all that. But there's 120 righteous people in the city of Nineveh. We're told, and there's many sources to this, that the Jewish nation are 600,000 souls. And of course, 20% of that, one-fifth of that is... 120,000. So that's a reference that the Jewish nation is always going to have at least a fifth of them are going to be righteous. If you'll remember, you'll recall during the Exodus narrative, Rashi tells us, at least according to one opinion of Rashi, that one-fifth of the Jewish people survived the Exodus. The rest of them perished. Only only fifth of them were righteous enough to survive. Similar idea here, that the city of Nineveh, the world, a fifth of them are righteous, and there's also a lot of beasts. There's also a lot of people that are not righteous. But what does it mean the people who are righteous, who don't know their right hand from the left hand? Again, it explains the going to Vilna. That, that means that the right is a reference to the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination. The left is a reference to the Yetzir Hurrah. Ideally, the righteous people, we have to find a way to worship God with both our good and our bad inclinations, with both our Yetzir Tov and our Yetzir Hara. Thus concludes the book of Jonah in its interpretation, its allegorical interpretation according to the Gorn of Vilna. And I want to point out that although the four chapters really, really focus, really zone in on different narratives and different stories, the first chapter, of course, Jonah round one, the soul is married to the body, and it deviates from the instruction of God and it suffers accordingly. It, it's killed. It, it, it dies. Chapter 2 is the soul after its death, before it's been reincarnated, it's going through the purification process in the Gehenna. Chapter 3 is round round 2. The, the, the soul is brought back to life, reanimated. This time it follows its directive. It does its mission of getting the world to repent and the specific role that the High Holidays, the Yom Kippur, plays in repentance. And finally... You have chapter four, which talks about, you know, the correct priorities in life. And, and Jonah, even though he's embracing the spiritual world and the spiritual mandate and spiritual mission, he's still cleaving a little bit to the good things in life and the, and the material life. And he's being guided and, 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 and nudged by God to focus on what really matters in this world. But I think there is a, obviously a collective theme of the entire book. Of course, the book is writing Yom Kippur. And on a simple level, it makes a lot of sense. It's about, it's a story of repentance. But even on this deep level, it's a story, it's a narrative that has that same common theme strung throughout its four chapters. Of course, an element of repentance is to realize that we have a soul. We are a soul. The soul has a mission. The soul's mission was given to by God. The soul originates from the highest realms. It's here temporarily. It's here in this very uncomfortable union with the body. 
Let's try to get things right. Chapter 2, we talk about the dire consequences of getting things wrong. When we keep that in mind, it could be a very powerful tool to propel us to make sure that we don't get things wrong, we don't make those fatal blunders, we don't make those those terrible errors, those terrible missteps and misdeeds, and don't have to suffer those consequences. And then we get a description of, of what actually happens and how we're supposed to go about go getting things right and repenting, the idea of humility, the idea of recognition of the fact that, you know, there's three days in the year that are the most potent days to awaken our soul, but really we're trying to get that attitude, that theme, that, that way of thinking, that way of living to accompany us throughout our whole lives. And finally, the final chapter is a description of what the priorities really are and how even Jonah in the second round, getting things right, A, having to suffer some of the consequences that are left over, the vestigial consequences of round one, but also even the soul gets things right, still having a taste for the material and God really showing him. It's really, it's, it's something which you get, you lose. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. It doesn't really, it shouldn't really matter that much to Jonah. And God seems to be toying with him a little bit. But the lesson for us is that the, the, the soul is almost, or the person, the collective body of this human is forgetting really what, 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 what matters. Even after you do the mitzvahs, even after you do the repentance, it's always important to keep this in mind of the big picture, where you are, where you came from, and where you're going, and before whom you're going to have to give an accounting for your deeds in this in this lifetime. This was an absolute pleasure and a joy to go through uh, with y'all. Uh, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. If you have any more comments or feedback or questions, I'm always happy to respond to all the emails that I get. And I look forward to our next session, our next study uh, session together in good health and in good spirits.